welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're staring into the mirror saying Bloody Mary, Candyman and La Reina de las Chicharas. Yes, the guest is V. Castro. The book is Queen of the Cicadas and, as you can tell by my mangling of even those few words of Spanish, my accent is going to be a problem this week. Thankfully, V, or Violet, is kind and patient about my linguistic atrocities. I speak urban legend a lot better than I do Spanish, which comes in handy as Queen of the Cicadas takes the Anglo-American tradition of summoning alluring demons from mirrors and gives a distinct Mexican flavour, full of goddesses and violence and sex and revenge. It's a heady mix that goes in all kinds of unexpected, weird directions. And so does our conversation. Violet and I talk about the universality of modern myths, where sex fits into horror, and where horror fits into Mexico's supposedly death-positive culture. Oh, and we talk rage, rage, rage. Not least that evoked by the American dirt controversy a few years back. So come with me to the hard-packed dirt of the border country. There's a lonely tree stained with blood and memory and clouded in the anger of cicadas. Let's talk scared. Hi Violet, thank you so much for talking scared with us. How are you? Hi, um, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm really good. I'm in the US at the moment uh, visiting my sister because I haven't seen her since 2019. <laughs> And um, yeah, so I'm in New York. It's great. Uh, it's fantastic to be stateside and getting some good Mexican food and um, yeah, seeing family. Excellent. Yeah. Much needed balm. I mean, you're in New York temporarily because a lot of people may not guess from your accent that you actually live in, here in the UK, don't you? Yes. I live just outside of London. So I've I've been there now for whew, like 13 years, 13 and a, no, more than that, 14 years. Um, but I'm originally from Texas, San Antonio. Um, so yeah, I'm just here visiting. And what, what, what does it feel like over there compared to home? You're my first transatlantic guest. So you can you can tell us what it's like <laughs> in comparison. You know, I mean, everybody's still wearing masks, uh, social distancing, um, most things are open. The weather has changed, so people are eating outside still, which is great. Unfortunately, this particular week, I've brought the English weather with me, and it has been cold and rainy and cloudy. <laughs> so I feel like I'm still in London, uh, except for like the odd day. But uh, it's good. You know, everybody seems to uh, kind of going with the flow and as, as everything reopens. Good. I I went out for a meal for the first time in like, what is it now, 14 months last night. I went into Manchester from my little countryside idyll. I went into the city centre and it felt like going into some kind of half dystopian, half utopian, futuristic sci-fi movie. I'd forgotten what buildings over three stories look like. So it was, uh, yeah, yeah, it was kind of weird. But anyway, it's it's quite fitting that you're back in, in your homeland, albeit a different state. Um, because your novel is very much set in in place and and geography. Mm-hmm. You're here to talk to me today about Queen of the Chicadas, which I've yes. got to admit, sorry, is a title I really struggled to wrap my tongue around. Uh, I find it really difficult to say <laughs> those words in that sequence. So if I mangle it, I, I apologise. That's all right. It, it's a tale of kind of modern myth from, from the border country. Yep. Um, I'm someone who's obsessed by contemporary folklore. So I'm really particularly looking forward to discussing this book with you. For those of my listeners who haven't read it or who may not be familiar with it, I don't see how because it's all over social media. But for those who aren't aware of it, (laughs) what do we need to know about Queen of the Chicadas? Well, you know, um, so my great grandparents were farm workers and I'm from South Texas. And there's a lot of Mexican-American history that isn't told. Um, and there's a lot of uh, folklore that comes that has pa- been passed down through oral history, and the oral tradition is very strong in my culture. You know, the Aztecs had a lot of had their own mythology, and 
their own history and beliefs, but unfortunately, a lot of it was destroyed or assimilated when the the Spanish came over. So there's not a lot of firsthand information for us, for my ancestry. So it's something I'm really interested in because, you know, everybody wants to know their history. Um, And I just uh, kind of put it all together into one book, uh, also with my feelings of of being a woman of color, personal struggles. It just was, uh, you know, as I say about a lot of of my books, it's just, to a certain extent, it's alchemy. Very much so. And we'll come back to the folklore that you mentioned. To to get people up to speed, the synopsis in in the simplest form, I I guess, is that a, a young woman called Belinda goes to a farm for a, a wedding and the farm is the site of a, of a, a horrendous crime that was committed um, in mm-hmm. decades earlier um, against a young woman called Milagros um, and th- we'll get into that as well into like the, the nature of that crime because it's particularly horrific but in researching this crime she becomes unearths and becomes part of this ancient but emerging folklore with the the, mm-hmm. the titular queen, the queen of the Chicadas, which is, yeah. let me see if I can get this right. In Spanish, it's La Reina de las Chicharas. Is that right? Yes, La Reina de las Chicharas. So the queen of the cicadas. Um, and I, I took that, uh, I have that title because um, it's the Aztec queen of the dead. Uh, Milagros becomes a, an urban legend based around the cicadas or as we say, chicharas, in, when she's um, unfortunately murdered. And in Texas, they're everywhere, and they're so loud. Um, so that was something from my, my uh, childhood I, I remember so vividly are the, the cicadas. And um, yeah, she Milagros gets her power from this ancient goddess um, who's part of her history. But again, that forgotten history, that forgotten world, and that's what I kind of wanted to bring out are all those elements of our forgotten history and beliefs. But wrap it up into urban legend because everybody loves a good urban legend. Um, and and at the at the time when I start when the, I got the idea, they had just announced that Candyman was uh, redone, and I was like, oh my god, I love Candyman. I've always loved Candyman. And I thought I could, I'd love to do something like that. Well, yeah, and everything you've said is everything everything I want to talk about, because I I equally find that stuff fascinating. But I've got to ask a kind of, I suppose, quite a trivial question first. You just mentioned then about the the sound of the cicadas, which is a much better way to pronounce it than the way I tried. Cicadas, yes. (laughs) Cicadas, yeah. I don't know why I do the ch thing. I've I've got no idea. Yeah. (laughs) It's okay. Cicadas. That's made things much easier. (laughs) Anyway. You mentioned the volume of them, and I've got to ask: Yeah, did you plan to release this novel on the year that the Brood X horde woke up from their seventeen-year slumber? Yeah. No, honestly, I think it was it was divine timing because it was quite a feat to get it published in the first place. And you can never predict publishing; you don't know, you know, how fast it's going to go. You don't know who's going to say yes or no. I almost gave up getting this this novel published. So it really has just been kind of a, you know, the machinations of the of the universe. This has been out of my control, which a lot of beautiful things happen when you just kind of <laughs> let go of control. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's a phenomenal coincidence. I, I should have said that this is published on the 22nd of the month by Flame Tree Press, yes. I believe. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is the greatest feat of submitting to the universe. I've been talking to people for for a year about people who've written books about plagues and pandemics and saying to them, you know, what are the chances that you had this in, in the locker and then COVID happened? But yours is even more specific. You know what I mean? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's the greatest viral marketing campaign I've ever heard of. So whatever you did to appease the gods, you, you did it right. Well, honestly, I, I'm just so happy to see it out there and it's got a, a bit of my heart and soul in it well like everything I, I write so it's pretty cool that it happened like that <laughs> right let's get into the meat now the stuff we talked about talking about mm-hmm. so you, you've kind of alluded to this by saying that your your grandparents were, were farm workers and that there mm-hmm. is um this this mexican folklore well quite literally in your blood both of your novels this one and your previous novel goddess of filth are 
They are mm-hmm. focused undeniably on the myths and culture of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a broad question, but, but I'd be interested to elaborate. What really draws you to writing about these figures and folklore and ritual? I saw a fantastic quote from you uh, in another interview where you said, why write about werewolves when my ancestors revered jaguars? Yes. I'd like to hear more about that, if possible. Yeah, I, I think that quote encompasses my thinking. Um, you know, as I stated before, a lot of our, you know, my ancest- my ancestral history uh, was destroyed or assimilated. And so it's almost like a coming home. It's a homecoming to reclaim belief, history, knowledge, spirituality, power, um, you know, to kind of say, you know, this is where I come from and I want to explore it more. It deserves to be a part of our literature because there are so few uh, books out there that um, explore the Mexican-American experience, Aztec history, what it means to be a Mexican-American woman. And um, all of these things, you know, they matter even more when they are are explored and written by Mexican-Americans or Mexican writers or women of color. So I really wanted to just reclaim my history, reclaim my voice, reclaim my power and uh, explore these different themes because it hasn't really been done before. And um, it's, it's a passion. It's something that's just inside of me that I feel strongly about and I love doing. I love sharing this work. It's difficult. It's hard. Of course, it's hard work to write a novel and then to get people to publish it. <laughs> but it goes beyond that for me. It's, um, it's reclaiming, a, I guess, a part of my soul. And, and um, yeah, I think that's it. It's, 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 it's a homecoming of sorts. Well, that, that's, that's beautifully put. You're my second guest who has written a novel that is en- emphatically about the, the the Mexican horror experience? Because I, in the early days of the show, I spoke to Sylvia Moreno Garcia about Mexican mm-hmm. Gothic. Her novel and yours really made me realise quite how ignorant I am as a supposed, you know, kind of I suppose expert in the field. I mean, I, I hate saying that, but I have some level of expertise at least in this field. And not only was I ignorant of the, the sort of the Latinx horror experience, I'd never even considered it. That was the, the real thing. You know, it hadn't even occurred to me because it, it, it feels like a lot of, how do I put this without competing diverse voices against each other? A, a lot of, of emphasis is, is put on the fact that African-American voices are suppressed and denied in genre. And it's kind of like acknowledging that suppression and denial is at least a form of acknowledgement where it hadn't even occurred Mm -hmm. to me you know that voices like your own are not being given a fair shake and not being given a profile and a platform in horror so yeah it's been it's been interesting to to see to see your side of the the experience as well but it, it does lead me to wonder is there anything in your very proud identity and culture that that lends itself to horror because why does this homecoming for you take this form of writing scary stories? Well, again, uh, you know, my history, our history is a is a form of horror. The the conquest of you know uh, the Spanish coming over, slaughtering people, um, denying them their freedom, that is a horror. But also the Aztecs, you know, did at times uh, practice um, human sacrifice. That is a horror. Growing up, I heard so many folk tales like La Llorona, La Lechuza, you know, Chupacabra, which most people know about. They're these creatures. They're these, you know, <laughs> really scary. And I grew up hearing that since I was a kid. And I was always fascinated by it, fascinated by ghosts, fascinated by the, the um, you know, the, the woman who danced with the devil at the dance hall. So I have a book coming out in November from Flav Tree Press uh, called uh, Mestiza Blood. And it's a short story collection with all of the like folk tales and urban legends I grew up hearing about. 
but I've kind of given them an, uh, an update and I've made them my own. Um, so I just grew up with it. it. It's since I can remember. And so I've always loved a ghost story and scary stories and it's just been there. And again, looking back at, you know, the history of my ancestors, that it is, is a horror. I think any, any group of people who have been um, oppressed in that way or uh, subjugated to violence in that way, that is a, that is a horror, you know, to see your people slaughtered is, is a horror. Yeah. I mean, it's undeniably a horrific past as, you know, all colonial uh, or colonized mm-hmm. cultures yeah. are. But what, what I did find interesting, and I, th- I think, again, it comes back to my ignorance, is that we're often given this supposed insight into Mexican culture that kind of applauds the, 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 the Mexican positivity towards death. You know, you get the, the, the Day of the Dead has been, has been marketed worldwide as this celebration as opposed to a lamentation of death like we have in the rest of the world. And I think sometimes it can be a little bit patronizing because it's like you watch the film Coco by Pixar and it's like, oh, aren't the Mexican people happy? Aren't they healthier than us in the way they deal with mortality? blah de blah blah And I think it sometimes it lacks nuance. Yeah. But I've got to admit, I came into this kind of buying into that a little bit, thinking, what would it be like reading a horror novel by a Mexican author because those guys treat death as a positive thing. And I was kind of taken aback then by how dark this novel was. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of tension in that, in, in the, uh, the the Mexican tradition towards death? How does that fit with horror? Uh, you know, again, but there is truth to that. You know, that death is not the end. And that's part of Day of the Dead is there's this belief that the, it's the um, boundary between us and the other world is quite thin. But there's also an acknowledgement of your ancestors with Day of the Dead. There's an an acknowledgement of where you come from, from your past, uh, to not forget. Um, And that's that's one of the positives I like to think of um, when I think of Dia de los Muertos. And it is something that I appreciate um, because I personally don't believe it is the end when we die. That's just my own personal belief. And um, so for me, it is something to celebrate. But I think there's like a huge sacrifice. Like in the in the book, there's a lot of sacrifice, personal sacrifice. I think, you know, t- talking about death and making it just kind of another part of the journey is quite interesting because there is so much that I think humans do not know about. We don't know what's what's out there. We don't know everything about the universe we don't and that's why a lot of in the book and in goddess of filth i kind of take the the mythology and make it cosmic in a sense so it isn't just ghosts or creatures there's something even deeper there's a there's a deeper understanding it it brings in an element of the idea there is a uh, we live in a multiverse and that the gods do exist it's just not in the way that we, our small brains, can comprehend. And that death is a cosmic event as opposed to um, a physical or spiritual. It's something even beyond what we can comprehend. Because I think there's so much in existence and in the world that we just cannot comprehend. And I love that. And that in itself is scary. The unknown is scary. Yeah, I really like the cosmic bit because that took me by surprise. <laughs> we, we won't give too much away but there is a, um, a late and quite major cosmic horror element to this novel and it as you said it's like um a multiverse or you know it's it's a more shall we say it's a more complicated celestial system yeah than just good and evil absolutely there's a whole metaphysics at the back of this that kind of I won't say borrows from Lovecraft, but is is recognisably Lovecraftian. But I always really particularly enjoy when writers of colour do something Lovecraftian because I like to think the old (laughs) racist is spinning in his grave somewhere. (laughs) That's always fun to do. Yeah, if if we can piss off old HP, then um, hopefully hopefully he's watching from whatever morbid afterlife he's in, getting really, really furious at you and Victor Laval. But yeah, (laughs) I mean, my my 
questions. I'm jumping all over the place now. But that does lead me to one Don't question, worry. which is that this is a relatively like slim book, I would say. Let me, I've got it in front of me now. It is, it's 214 pages. And you yeah. managed to pack a lot into it. So there's like, there's mythologies and there's, there's dual timelines. And, and then there's this cosmic element, which alludes to, a, a you know, this, this huge universe expanding mythology. I did kind of think to myself, bloody hell, she, she's bitten off a lot here in, in such a, a, a relatively short page length. Was that something you wanted? Was it a, a product of publishing or was it a struggle to keep it so concise? You know, a lot of people are going to might hate this answer and might not get it and will snub their noses to me. Honestly, I start with a blank Word document and I just write. I typically don't outline. I listen to my inner voice. I listen to my heart and I just write. I don't, I don't start with, I want to pack this, this or this and no, I just sit there. I look at it and I just, I just flow. I just let it flow through me. Whatever comes to my mind, whatever pours out of me, it lands on the page. And then I go back and, and, you know, do that editing. But I am just, I, I, the way I write and the way I approach storytelling is just flow. There's no rhyme or reason. It's what, what is it that I have to say? What's, what's bubbling, what's bubbling to the top of my soul? And then I just go for it. So yeah, there was no intention on how it how it ended up it just kind of happened okay why would it why would people hate that answer because some people have like these ideas of how writing should be you know like oh you need to do this and this and this and this is how it happens and and for me I just I'm the kind of person that I like look at a rule book and I toss it out (laughs) (laughs) I don't like rules I don't like rule books I don't like to be put in a box um, I feel like, especially being a woman of color, I've, I've had to live in too many of those. So I'm like, fuck your box. I'm going to use it as a step and I'm going to climb over that that fence or I'm going to use it to do whatever I want with it, but I ain't going in it. Seems <laughs> fair enough to me. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think people have any right to have an opinion on how you write a book. Recently, I, I had um, an author on here kind of tell me in, in, a, in an ever so slightly smug way that they they don't write to any kind of plan or plot or regimen and, and that seemed a little bit kind of like all, all right fair enough good for you but beyond that I think you know if you if, if it turns into an interesting book and it and often it throws up something different then then flow sounds good to me I mean what I would say about Queen of the Cicadas hang on let me get this right Cicadas Cicadas, Cicadas. Yeah. good god man get it together <laughs> What I would say about it, and I think this is, is is drawn from what you've just said, the structure of the novel is completely unusual. So the, what you would think of as the kind of the climax or the, the, the ultimate confrontation happens probably two thirds of the way through. And then there's, there's other things that happen that then totally change what you think is actually going on and how the world works. I mean, yeah, it... Mm-hmm. it totally differs from your normal three-act structure and I was going to ask is that intentional but I'm guessing that's just a a consequence of your method again I don't have any intentions on how it goes obviously you send it to the editor or you know whoever's editing it and then they'll have feedback feedback like oh that didn't I I didn't get that you need to move this or shift this da 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 and I leave that to the editor to be honest um, because Again, when you're writing a, a book or a story, you read it so many times and you can like, for me at least, I can see it in my, the images in my head and it's rolling and I get it and I understand it. But to read it for the first time, there could be something that I, there could be blind spots like, oh shit, that doesn't make sense. Okay, I understand why that does make sense. I'll shift that here. Da, da, da. And that's what I love about editors and editing is that, you know, as a writer, you write, you read it so many times, and you you know because it's in your head what you're trying to say and what you what you see. Your vision is clear, but an editor can come in and say like, "Well, this could be confusing," or "Did you mean that?" And also because I'm writing um, from a different place, there are some questions or certain things about my culture or the language or rituals that need to be clarified. 
So the structure and those kind of things usually come into the editing process, which I appreciate. Again, like I said, you know, I'm not so big headed that I can't say that I don't have any blind spots because of course I do. And, and the more I'm in publishing and having, and, and work with editors, the more I appreciate having that other person uh, kind of point those little things out. And it just makes me a stronger writer. It makes me um, more excited about writing. So yeah. Um, I think that's the answer to the question. <laughs> like, what was I talking about? <laughs> I, th- I think I, I don't think I asked the question. I think I made a statement. Okay, so we, we floated around the edges here with theme and, and, and bigger concepts, but let's get into the book itself. So gave a kind of brief praise at the start, but all that all that listeners need to know really is that there is a, a sort of three-way relationship in this novel between Belinda, our contemporary protagonist, uh, Milagros, the, the victim of the murder decades earlier, and the Queen of the Dead, which who I yes. believe is... See, I may as well throw caution to the wind here. It's... Mikta Kachihuatl. <laughs> the the TL is silent, so it's just a t- you don't have to say the L. The L is silent, but just call her the Queen of the Dead for everybody's sake. Just call her the Queen of the Dead. <laughs> Sorry for uh, I'm, I'm absolutely slaughtering your language. Don't worry, I, a lot of people have that, but you know, again, I like to you know, it's Nahuatl. Nahuatl. See, I just I just I just made the mistake that I corrected you. It's Nahuatl. <laughs> <laughs> it is tough when you see it written. Um, there's a really great writer, David Bowles, who actually um, does a lot of Nahuatl translations. He's amazing, um, David Bowles. Um, and I started taking his his course on the language of, and I, I stood had too much work so I had to stop it but um it really gives you like a good uh I started because I I wanted to learn more about my history and the language and the indigenous um people of Mexico and uh he he's a great resource David Bowles so but anyway sorry go ahead so the queen of the dead I I interrupted no no, not at all not at all listen what you have to say is far more important than what I have to say um we've we've got so we've got Belinda modern protagonist Milagros older protagonist who may or may not be a, a spirit in the modern day and the queen of the dead who is um, pulling all kinds of strings. Yes. The novel specifically acknowledges the nature of urban legends um, and how yes. they grow and how they develop and stuff like that. And that's something mm-hmm. I find fascinating. I did, I did a lot of research for, for quite a while into contemporary urban folklore, particularly how it's driven by the internet. Things like slender man and stuff like that you know what i like to call the viral as opposed to the oral tradition yeah that's me saying it on air so that i can copyright that for future use <laughs> but i wonder did, did you do a lot of research yourself into urban legends to help create your own how, how easy is it to create your own urban legend uh i grew up with urban legends since i was a child living in san antonio san antonio is filled with urban legends Texas is filled with urban legends. So it's something I've always grown up hearing. Again, you hear these stories. And um, so it was just a natural progression. I didn't do any research on on urban legends or how to create an urban legend. I just, I just went for it the way I experienced urban legend. That's it. Okay. G- give us a flavor of urban legend from your area, from, from San Antonio. Okay. So, well, I'll give you two. Um, for example, uh, when I was a, a little girl on my birthday, my mom took me to a site. Um, this is really, I've talked about this before in another interview. Um, it's, it's really, uh, oof. Um, anyway, there's a tra- uh, train tracks where a school bus full of children was hit by a train. And they say, if you go at night, you put baby powder on the back, on your back window uh, put your put your car uh, very safe in neutral on the train tracks and you wait that your car will slowly go over the train tracks to the to the road and you'll see little handprints on the back of the of your on your windows where you've put the baby powder and then there's another site an abandoned dance hall abandoned bar where a woman supposedly danced with the devil and, um, you know, 
again, <laughs> if those two were in San Antonio, there, there are the missions, which are just really haunted because of the history. Um, uh, yeah, the, 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 I guess those are the ones that really stuck out with me. And then obviously La Llorona, which I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's the focus of a, 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 my next novel that, fingers crossed, something will happen with. Um, I'm working on it. Um, and she's the woman who drowned her kids for love. Yeah, that's the one I think. That's <laughs> the one I think most people have heard of. I'm glad to hear that you're yeah, writing yeah, a novel yeah. because oh, it's done. It's done, and and it'll be. It's it's going to be very, very, very shortly um, on the market for a home. Right. So my agent's going to send it around, see what happens. Well, massive fingers crossed because the character needs she she needs decent, respectful treatment after the awful movie adaptation the thing with you know the conjuring verse treatment yeah 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 that was awful woeful movie so i believe there's a great film on shudder um called la garona um which is um a spanish language film which i believe is much much better it was fantastic it was fantastic it's excellent actually yeah i explore la llorona through the lens of um postpartum depression and a crumbling marriage so okay right yeah i can see that I, I, again, I do a few different thing, you know, modern life mixed with the supernaturals and cosmic. Kind of your little, your little brand now, I suppose. Yeah. Excellent. Well, <laughs> well, I also write erotic horror, so. Oh, don't worry. We'll get to that. Don't worry. I have a whole raft of questions about that stuff as well. Uh, uh, uh yeah. To, to finish up with, with a urban legend though, bit of a convoluted question i'll try and keep it clear um you mentioned yourself Candyman. you mentioned yeah. um the influence of that and it obviously anyone who's versed in any of this stuff will see that there is some conversation going on there between your own work and Candyman. man like even down to things that like there are insects involved there is you know a, a, yeah. a vengeful entity with a violent tragic death and stuff like that yes and Candyman was it him itself a kind of a, a riff on the the Bloody Mary legend. Um, and, yeah. and a lot of people may actually not know that, that Candyman was written by Clive Barker, who set it originally in Liverpool, and then it was transposed by the film to America, to Cabrini Green in the movie. Um, and I just found it... And I've struggled to really kind of pin down my thought on this, which often happens. But it to me, it feels really interesting that... Candyman was the product of a British writer and the story was taken from Britain and put in the US, whereas you are a a Mexican-American author who's come to the UK and has written this story. (laughs) And it feels like this this kind of central body of myth is, is jumping back and forwards across the Atlantic. Do you think there's something universal about this type of legend and story? Um, yeah, because I think it goes back to death it, it, and, and your view of death. Um, you know, if everybody could have their choice, they would die very old and peaceful and in their sleep without pain. Um, and then they would be greeted somewhere really nice. I, I guess I guess some people want to be greeted somewhere nice. Maybe some people just want it to be like done and dusted. But um that's not the way of the world. There's a lot of brutal history. There's a lot of brutality. There are a lot of things wrong with the world that have to be addressed. And um, having to be on the receiving end of brutality and die and not have a say to be voiceless, it's like insult to injury. So um, I I just kind of wanted to address that because how, you know, when people are murdered brutally in our world, they don't come back and tell us how it made them feel. It, we don't, a lot of times they're forgotten. Their voices leave. There's, there's no way to capture that. And, um, and you get one side of the story like La Llorona. So I wanted to just get the other side of the story. You know, how would you feel being on the receiving end of that brutality? You know, um, victims who are on the receiving end of brutal crimes that do survive but yet are not believed or they're not heard or they live in fear for the rest of their lives 
that's a that's a big sentence. That's that's a lot. So you know, I think that's something that people explore. Something that uh, I think um, is quite interesting to think about when it comes to how we treat other people, how we treat victims of crimes, and how we treat and think of the perpetrator of crimes, because all of it's connected. We're all connected. Um, And it just asks a bigger question. How can we be better as individuals to be better to each other, to make this entire fucking place better? Because it's a shit show if you look around. Well, that's a very coherent answer to my quite incoherent question. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, so you've touched on something there that I think really rings out in this in your novel, which is 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 anger, basically, and rage. Yeah. And yeah, I can't remember really the last time. Actually, I can remember the last time. I I, I read a book um, for the show last year called the The Blade Between by Sam J. Miller which is all about rage and, and the word rage, the, the actual word, I, I asked him, it, it comes up again and again. And he wrote from a position of being a gay man in a homophobic small town. But in, in your book, rage is everywhere, rage and anger and vengeance. And mm-hmm. you particularly feel it during the murder and and the aftermath. You mention actually in a short Q&A at the start of this book, and I'm not sure whether that's only in the press release proofs or whether it will be actually be in the the, the copy for sale but you, they ask you a question in the intro saying did you base your character on anyone you know and you, you you've written that there is a lot of you in belinda and the aztec queen and that you are filled with a deep sadness and a deep rage yes i hope you won't, won't mind me asking but it seems too important a point to neglect what are you rage full about can you elaborate on that quote a little um yeah uh you know i grew you know growing up as a mexican-american woman seeing violence in my neighborhood perpetrated against women rage in um not being able to or knowing how to pay for college even though we're constantly told and i touch on this in the novel told that you have to have a college education you have to have a degree you have to have this this and this and this yet we are in so many ways denied it that so many ways doors are closed for us and you just get this pent up rage because you don't just see it for you you see it for your cousins your aunts your your uncles the people in prison the women in prison the women who are not believed when they're victims of crime um, the murdered women down in Juarez, Mexico. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of questions why we are not we don't have the same ability to rise the way other people have. Um, and for me, writing has been an outlet for that um, because you you know you take these supposed failures and you internalize them and you end up thinking, well, I'm not good enough. Well, I can't. Well, I, I this, this, and this, and this. When in reality, we need to stand back and say, well, what is wrong with the system? What is wrong with the way society is structured? What is wrong with the way the prisons are structured? What is wrong with the way education and healthcare and all these other things are structured? Um, and and that in its and that it, it just gets you even more angry when you think about it. Um, so for me, writing these books and, and having a platform and having a voice and, and trying to do the best I can to, you know, lift other authors up, to be a, a Latina voice, um, all helps me kind of say, you know what, let me put my foot in the door and leave it open. And that's going to be a rock. That's going to be that's going to be a wedge so that more of us can follow through so that door just opens more and more and more until there is no door till there are no barriers till there are no fences you know you can hear me getting really passionate now (laughs) i'm very passionate about that but it's not just me as a as a latina i think it goes for a lot of people from a lot of marginalized communities um so yeah there's a lot of me in there and and just like personal personal sadness things i've i've experienced in my life which will be even more in the La Llorona book that I wrote. And 
in uh, Goddess of Filth. Um, so I, I, I just, I'm just kind of, for a better, lack of a better um, sentence, I'm a bit of an open book. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I also, you know, there's something to be said to letting people know that they're not alone. Well, that's a lovely sentiment. Yeah. One thing you do do, it's got to touch on some of that. You, you mentioned some of the things you're angry about and, you know, the, and, the, and the blockages that are put in place and the barriers and the pressures. And the, the murder of Milagros in this in this novel, I mean, the actual act itself, the atrocity, is is, is quite awful to read. And, and it did remind me, you mentioned Juarez, it, it did remind me in a way of um, that amazing section of Roberto Bolano's 2666 where he, you know, for pages and pages just lists the details of murders of women on the, the Texas-Mexican border. And and it was almost like your murder scene stood for, for all those atrocities. But in, in the back of that, you also very briefly but but powerfully sketch the the, the way that all the, the infrastructure and the society around it is also complicit, either evil or complacent. So you've got the sheriff who just wants an easy life. And you've got the journalist who comes along and mocks the corpse when when taking a photograph. And even the priest, who means well, is a bit ineffective. I mean, there's there's a quote, actually, where he says how the paper covered news about lynching of folk in other parts of the country. And and, and you think in your mind it's wrong, but then you turn the page. And he says he never expected murder here or to see something he couldn't flip past. Mm -hmm. And that gets across that sense of, you know, just complacency. The whole thing about all it takes for evil to flourish is one good man and do nothing, etc. And I think you do, you do a really good job of very concisely and briefly sketching how the entire society is is set up to exploit and neglect these people and these victims. That's that was kind of you know as I was writing, I I got that and I was feeling that, um, and because I'll be honest, when I was uh, trying to get this published. And, and just kind of revising it after a ton of um, rejections, American Dirt came out. Ah, and, right, okay. <laughs> and all this stuff was happening with her. There was dinners that she was having, you know, the, the, the publisher was throwing for her and the book. And um, I think the author wrote, had a manicure with like barbed wire on her nails. And there was, you know... Uh, the money that she received and all of the um, PR and I cannot tell you and and a lot of people were very very angry about that you want to talk about rage the very first sentence of the book where I talk about the brown masses and the chichadas Mm -hmm. I put that in there because of the way the author of American Dirt described Latinos and the the sentiment of the book and the way it was handled. So you want to talk about rage, that book and the release and everything around it really fired me up. And there's a lot of that was put into this book. My feelings over American Dirt. That is really interesting. I have a bit of an anecdote about American Dirt. And I, I've got to confess that I've, I've kind of educated. Oh, no, I've been educated in 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 what I think about it, because I, I have long been one of these people who emphatically argues for the rights of any author to write from any perspective if they do it respectfully. That's something I've really long believed in. And and when the American Dirt thing happened, I had a review pending with the LA Review of Books of that book. It wasn't it wasn't a very favourable review, but I had a review pending, and they pulled it because of the controversy. And I remember being quite annoyed. I, I'll be really honest, didn't understand the the truth of the controversy until I spoke to people like yourself. And exactly that, like you compare your book or or Mexican Gothic or something like that to to Janine Cummings's book. It's yeah. taken me a long time to get the um, the, the validity of your anger. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I was I was yeah. quite wrong yeah. in my stance on it, to be honest. And, you know, we're all learning. We're all trying to be better. We're all trying to educate ourselves. And that's and, and, and thank you for being so honest. I think that's great that we can sit here and have these kind of, you know, honest conversations with each other because that, that's going to bring unity. That's going to bring understanding. And that's also why I write these books is, is 
to bring unity and understanding. Like, well, let me, let me show you, let me tell you, I'm not going to just hate on you and put you on blast. I'm going to, I'm going to explain. I'm going to let you know how I feel. I'm going to pull back my skin and let you see. Um, Because I think then we can really get into who we are. And at the bottom, we are human, (laughs) you know, and, and, and yeah, and that anger that, well, we're not getting a fucking fair shot. And look at this, look at this. I mean, you know, and I'm glad that you, you know, you're able to be honest and say, oh, I didn't really understand that, but now you understand. And um, I think that's, that's, that's really important. Um, yeah, I, I, will, I will always die on the hill that anyone should have the freedom to write from any subjectivity. But what I didn't get, what I wasn't understanding was that that has to also come with a fair shake. I didn't get that part of it. Exactly. You exactly. Know? You just exactly. That's the best way to put it. Oh, it's almost two different conversations. You know, like that's it, exactly exactly right. And and just sitting there again, like I say, you and you know, when you're a writer of color, you internalize all these things like, oh, I'm not good enough. My writing's not good enough. This isn't good enough. And then you see that and you're like, what? So you want these stories. You want these brown stories. You want these ethnic stories you just don't want them from us Mm. you want them from the kind of writer you think is a writer (laughs) so now you know i'm i'm very honest about that there is a lot in that in the book that is a response to american dirt and i'm not shy about it and i don't care what people think about that either (laughs) that's that that, i'm glad you brought up that that is interesting i hadn't thought of the comparison but yeah of course um we're getting running out of time a little bit, so I want to I want to finish on a slightly different note because we, we've both got like a bit angry and invested and and <laughs> yeah. So so let's let's lighten things up by talking about sex, please. <laughs> I, I noted it. I mean, it's it's. I won't say it's a very sexual book. What I would say is it's a frankly sexual book. I think is a fair way of putting it. Um, yeah. And Belinda, the protagonist, has this kind of tortured, aggressive sexuality mm-hmm. that she seems quite ill at ease with. I mean, she says, again, I picked out a quote where she says, um, men either made me feel safe or frightened the shit out of me. There was no middle ground with the opposite sex. And that very much is the yeah. sex for her. She's both a she's both weaponized and a victim of her own sexuality. Absolutely. I know you've written erotic fiction and erotic horror, and I have this grand theory that I keep trying to espouse. I've said to a few people now um, that sex has largely been taken out of horror in the last two decades. So the era of Clive Barker and Poppy Z. Bright mm-hmm. and writers I would refer to as sensual authors, not yeah. necessarily sexual, but sensual authors, it feels like that has been replaced with a prudishness that's fine with violence, but not with sex. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Am I right or am I just reading the wrong stuff? Um, I I don't know about prudish, but I just say like a lot of people, uh, there's like either the sex is being written, it's bad sex and it's not completely honest or it's just not in there at all. And I think a lot of that comes with people probably saying, well, I need to make this marketable. I need to make this publishing, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, you, I, I, for me, sex is such a natural thing and it's, it's a huge part of most people's lives. Um, and so I, I have it in most of my books. There's always an aspect of, of sexuality and, and sensuality. So said the sangre, is a three short story collection. It's it's on uh, Amazon, um, which is incredibly graphic and detailed. And the last story, Snake Hips, is probably one of my most popular stories. Everybody's like, oh, I love it. Um, there's also The Kukui of Cancun in Worst Laid Plans from Grindhouse Press, a short story. And again, I, I address the sexuality and just being a woman, you know, your sexuality, you can't ex- escape it because you are subject to the gaze all the time. Or And it's, you know, since I was a, chi- a child, you know, you learn from a very young age as a girl, like your body is not 
just for you. And it's a tough way to grow up. I mean, I think it's getting better for the, uh, these generations. But, you know, I know family members who've experienced violence and they could not talk about it or they could not, you know, they feel, felt, um, you know, they had to suppress their sexuality um, because it would, it would uh, invite unwanted attention. But I'm just like, I don't really care. I don't want to live like that. You know what? I, I'm going to, this is my body. This is who I am. This is, I'm a human being. I am not here to make other people comfortable. I am not here to not invite or invite. And if I do invite, that's my prerogative. Um, and if I say no, well, that's my fucking prerogative too. And um, so for me, I want to freely talk about sex, my sexuality, my body, my wants, my needs, my desires, because I'm a human. And why do I have to make anybody comfortable? I live on this planet. I have only one life. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to live it. Um, and so I write about these things. And the great thing about that is you, you write in a genre which in, in which making people comfortable is often not what you want anyway. So Yeah. So why not? <laughs> why not? Why not? I think a lot of people are afraid because it's an easy way to get a critical savaging. Um, but it, it does just worry me that something which mm -hmm. is, you know, such an integral part of human existence is being excised out of horror or only kept in as something which is exploitative and a plot, a plot machination to, to make, you know, someone go off on a revenge mission or something like that. It, it, it feels like in the 80s, things were almost healthier. But despite the fact that in the 80s, sexual politics were a damn sight less healthy, it at least felt like the artistic treatment of sex was healthier. It feels like now we're fine with heads being cut off, but, but not with penises being erect. Do you know what I mean? That's like how it feels like we've, what we've got to. Yeah. Well... I think if it comes from an authentic place, you need, if you're authentic with it and if you're being real with yourself and you're being real on the page, that comes across, you know? And that's what I think people need to do. You want to bring sex back in, just be real about it. Be authentic about it. Um, and that's what I try to do. Well, I think, yeah, the one thing you could not be accused of is being inauthentic on the page. <laughs> well we've talked for an hour now so if you if you don't mind i'm going to ask you my closing two questions um and then we'll do a bit of stuff for the patreon listeners but yeah it's been it's been a great chat we've gone into places that i i didn't expect I've, i haven't asked half my written questions because the ones you brought up have been far more interesting oh thank <laughs> but to close like, i've just got two simple questions um First things first, if you could recommend a book for my listeners to read, what would it be and why? Um, so I'm just going to do um, two quickly. I really, one, Sergio, Sergio Gomez wrote a really fun slasher called Camp Slaughter. So it kind of like goes back to, um, you know, the whole slasher, uh, chainsaw massacre kind of you know it's 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 a good solid slasher not too big so Sergio Gomez and then you were talking about you know women going missing um, I'd like to also uh, talk about um, Sina Paleo um, it's called Through the Forest so Sina Paleo she has a ton of different books but she wrote a book about violence again with all these women who've been uh, victims of crime so it was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. So everybody should really check it out. Um, Cena Paleo has some really good work out there. And then Camp Slaughter by Sergio Gomez. Um, and Gabino Iglesias. I mean, he's he's a great author. People should check out as well. I'm I'm desperately trying to get Gabino and, and Cena on the show. It's just trying to find some time. I've overplanned the schedule because I panicked in the early days. Uh, but they will definitely be people on okay. the show um later at some point in the future if they if they want to be um and sorry I, the first name again who wrote camp slaughter sergio gomez i will i will look him up because that's not a name i'm familiar with uh but yeah thank you for that they, they they will go in the show notes for people who want to if they didn't hear it or can't or forget check the show notes those books will be listed there um and my last question my favorite question violet what truly scares you being silenced, being silent, 
that scares the fuck out of me because that in itself is a slow death. That's worse than death, not being able to express yourself. That really scares me. What a fantastic way to end an interview. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This was a great chat. And yeah, this was awesome. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you once again for listeners. Queen of the Cicadas, Cicadas, I've got it right that time, (laughs) is published by Flame Tree Press on the 22nd of June. Check it out. But V Castro, thank you for talking scared. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Were you wincing at me by the end there? If you were, imagine my pain. Sitting in my office, alone, editing this and hearing myself sound like that guy on holiday who's learned the word cerveza and thinks that's all he needs. Bless Violet for her patience. I had to laugh when she told me to not even bother trying to say the Aztec name for the goddess. Jesus. Hopefully the content of the conversation made up for my vocal horrors. I'll be honest... Though Queen of the Cicadas wasn't entirely my cup of tea in parts, I wholly respect what Violet is trying to do with the novel. I loved her phrase about making her foot a wedge in the door, and the way this novel blends folklore and cosmic themes with with sex and violence, it's certainly a distinct voice that deserves to be noticed. It's unusual and and quite unlike anything else I've, I've read recently, even though on paper... It does owe a big debt to Candyman and and other urban legend horrors that have come before it. Give it a read. Make your own mind up. I'd be really fascinated to hear what you think. Urban legends generally do need to make a comeback in horror, in my opinion. I had great hopes that the wave of creepypasta and online folklore in the noughties would, would usher in some renaissance, but it never really took off. I mean, Slenderman has had books and video games and films made about him, and they've all been terrible. <laughs> um, so, yeah, bit of a letdown, because I love folklore, and I love legends, and I love that, that place where reality and fiction meet. Maybe Queen of the Cicadas can help, and we've also got the Candyman remake coming. I'm really excited for that, especially as it seems oddly poised between a reboot and a sequel, which opens up the opportunity to be surprising, I suppose. We'll have to see. I normally have an encyclopedic knowledge of film release dates, but post-pandemic, and can we say post-pandemic? Yeah, it doesn't quite feel right. Whatever we're calling this weird period, it's thrown my movie awareness into chaos. All I know is that at some point this year, Candyman will arrive, and I'll go and see it, and then I'll go home, and then I'll never, ever say his name in a mirror. I'm 37, but seriously, fuck that noise. What are your favourite urban legends, either on film or not? Once this episode is live, I'm going to post that question on Twitter, Come give me an answer. I love to hear about local legends from people's hometowns. You can find the show on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or on Instagram at TalkingScaredPod. Alternatively, if you've got a great hometown creepy story that needs elaboration, email me with it at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'm deciding right now that I'll do one of my Patreon deeper dive episodes into urban legend horror in the near future. So, yeah, if you do email me with a story, I suppose it it could make it onto the show. Speaking of Patreon, you know the drill. Your support is invaluable and gratefully received. Patrons should have had their first few pieces of bonus content by now, and there's more coming, including my episode on the scariest books I've ever read. I hope you enjoy that when you hear it, because I've had to, to retread some pretty dark and murky memories in putting it together. If you want to become a Patreon member, you can find info in the show notes, along with all the books we discussed in this episode. There was quite an extensive list to include this week, um, but I'd like to give a particular shout-out to 2666 by Roberto Bellano, which was actually recommended to me by an author on the show. I can't remember who. Um, and, and, and the book has blown my mind. It's epic in the true sense of the word and horrific in many, many ways. Go book it a month in your reading calendar and devour it. Otherwise, 
I'm back next week with Greg Buchanan to talk about 16 Horses, his disorienting crime, thriller, horror, poetic debut. It's a mix of animal cruelty and seaside sadness. It's it's quite the trip. Patrons, feel free to exploit your right to ask questions too. But until then, break out of your box, read authentic voices and repeat after me. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody... Nah. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.